You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. Every now and then, I like to try and support some of my fellow independent history podcasters. With that in mind, I'm going to run a trailer for 10 American Presidents. This show is more of an audio documentary and soundscape as opposed to a regular podcast. But know that 10 American Presidents is a great show, and they are currently covering Ronald Reagan. I think it is timely, not only because an election is coming up here in the United States, but as it marks the 40th anniversary of Reagan's victory. So here you go, 10 American Presidents. Enjoy. As America prepares its presidential election on November the 3rd, we look at the life of a president who 40 years ago was called a dangerous extremist, who wanted to put nuclear weapons in space and who proposed large tax and spending cuts hoping to destroy the power of Washington. Go and get a uniform report of the scrubs. Why? Because I think you'd make a football player. I doubt Try it. Try it anyway. All right, if you insist. Now, wait a minute. What's your name? Kip. George Kip. Raised in the small towns of Illinois, he was the actor who changed America, helped bring down the Berlin Wall, and became a lion of the right. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Listen to part one of Ronald Reagan, from Illinois to California on 10 American Presidents, from Royfield Brown and the author of Reagan, American icon Ewan Morgan. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, a cast and wherever else you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. I hope you have been enjoying our series on Venetian explorer Marco Polo. Just a reminder, you can get a map of Marco's journey on our website, explorerspodcast.com, or there is a link in the show notes. And that's it for notes and sidetracks. Let's get going. Thus far, we have gotten Marco Polo, along with his father and uncle, to Kanbalik, which is modern-day Beijing, and to the court of the Mongol emperor, Kublai Khan. Last time we took a good chunk of our show talking about the exotic world that Marco had immersed himself in. This was a land of wildly varying peoples, religions, and cultures. Now, one of the big things we learned about Marco Polo and his travels is that there is not really a linear timeline provided by the man for everywhere that he went. This means that he doesn't say, in April we went to City A, then in May we went to City B, and then in June we went to City C. Instead, we learn that Marco spent 17 years as a representative of the Great Khan. In that time and capacity, he traveled throughout Asia, and he likely went to many places more than once. But in his book, he wraps all of his journeys to one place into a single narrative. This makes sense. If he went to Tibet, let's say three times, he doesn't need to describe all three of those missions. He just wraps it all up into a single story. 
Thus, without a timeline, we'll simply describe each of Marco's major endeavors in the same fashion that he did. In our last episode, we went through Marco's trek southwest across China, from Kanbalik to as far as Tibet and Myanmar, nearly reaching India. He then swung through Vietnam before returning home. This journey covered at least 5,000 miles, probably more. Marco described the city, the surrounding lands, and the people and their customs. It is believed that he went on some of these journeys as a tax collector and or emissary for the Khan. And thus, he goes into great detail about the natural resources found in each land and the important industries, such as wine and silk production. So today, we are going to focus on another of Marco's major missions, and that is a trek down the coast of China to some of the most populous and wondrous cities in the world. Now, a comment about what we are about to hear. I mentioned that the Mongols conquered China in the 1270s, and this is correct. But I want to note that the previous rulers of China, the Song Dynasty, did not surrender until 1276, and some places would resist for several more years after that. And there were military campaigns throughout Asia during the 1270s and 1280s. This included an invasion of Burma, aka Myanmar, which was not complete until around 1287. And there were several incursions into Vietnam, which were repulsed, as was an attempt to invade the island of Java. Another huge endeavor was Kublai Khan's attempt to invade Japan. There would be attempts to conquer the island in 1274 and 1281. These were massive affairs, and both would end in failure. Marco himself never went to Japan, but he talked about these campaigns in depth as they happened during his time in Asia. By the way, the Mongol invasions of Japan were a catastrophe, with the Mongols losing approximately 15,000 men in the first invasion and over 100,000 in the second. I mention all of this to stress how recent the conquest of China had been while Marco was in service of the Khan. I mean, the Polos had not arrived in China until 1275. That means Marco would have been traveling throughout China even while fighting was still going on or had recently ceased. This is one of the reasons that the Great Khan used men like Marco. A foreigner such as Marco had no loyalty to the Chinese and was thus considered more trustworthy than a native Chinese representative. Now, a few things about Marco Polo that we want to mention. First, early on, he became a big taker of notes. Part of this was likely because his job required it. The other reason is that the Khan loved all these details. The more, the merrier. Last time, we called this observe, record, and report. And Marco did exactly that. And in the process, he would become a keen observer and dispenser of information. The Khan loved his storytelling, and Marco would go on to develop a reputation as a first-rate yarn spinner. In fact, in Venice, he would be called Emilioni, meaning the million, due to the fact his stories had such huge numbers involved. And a final note about Marco Polo that I want to make is that for all the things he said that he did, there is no record of him in any of our Chinese or Mongol sources. This leads some to believe that Marco made up a lot of his tales, or perhaps never even really went to China, and just cobbled together all the descriptions from other sources. Now, it's very, very unlikely that Marco made this all up. Virtually every place that he discusses has been identified by scholars, and the details he provides are often too specific, things he could not have known without actually having been there. Thus, most scholars and historians believe that Marco Polo did, in fact, go to China and have a majority of these experiences. Now, regarding the comment about Marco not showing up in Chinese sources, that is likely for a number of reasons. First, source material from this era in China is limited. That any mention of the Polos has not survived is not a shock. Second, while Marco likes to talk about how important he is, he probably wasn't that essential to the grand scheme of the Mongol Empire. He's one of many, many agents and tax collectors. That he's not mentioned by Chinese sources, 
probably just means that he didn't do stuff to merit mention. Frankly, riding around China as a tax collector just isn't that big of a deal. So with that all said, let us get Marco Polo on the road and waterways for another adventure. This one will be a journey down the coast of China about 1,500 miles to some of the great metropolises of the world, including Kinsei, which is modern-day Hangzhou, a city that was probably the most populous in the world at this time. For this mission, Marco would have departed from Kanbalik and headed south. He traveled overland, passing through several cities over the course of the next few days. He then headed east for three days before reaching Kangzhou. By the way, for the most part, I'm going to use the modern-day names of these places. I know I haven't done that for Kanbalik, but I essentially did it in the last episode for every place else, and we will keep up that practice in this episode. So the city of Kangzhou is important because it was on the Grand Canal, which is one of the great engineering marvels of the era. It was an 1,100-mile network of lakes and rivers and waterways and locks that linked Kanbalik to the aforementioned Hangzhou. The final part of the canal, up to Kanbalik, was actually not completed until 1288, toward the end of Marco's tenure in China. It is the longest artificial river or canal in the world. Marco would, rightfully so, marvel at the Grand Canal, and his descriptions of it are some of the most complete and detailed that have survived from this era. In Kangzhou, Marco noted the great quantities of salt produced in the area. Salt was enormously valuable, and it would be cut into squares and used as payments for goods and services, or exchanged for paper money. Otherwise, as with his other journeys, he will generally describe the cities, the local people, unique customs, and take note of the items of commercial interest. Most of these people will use paper money and be idolaters, meaning worshippers of Buddhism, Confucianism, Taoism, and Chinese folk religion. There were also a smattering of Muslims and Nestorian Christians in many of these cities. By the way, I made note of Chinese folk religion last time, and again just now, and what I mean by that is that many Chinese blend elements of established religions, such as Buddhism and Taoism, with a basic veneration of nature and their ancestors and the cosmos, and that gets you Chinese folk religion. Now that's really, really simplistic, but I think you get the idea. Anyhow, most of these cities we are going through will be big and wealthy. The coast of China was a hub of commerce and wealth and luxury, and Hangzhou had been the capital of the Song Dynasty. This means there will be very little roughing it on Marco's part. He will go through well-established and well-developed areas for the majority of his travels. For this journey, going forward, Marco would have followed the Grand Canal to the south. He likely went by boat, but it's possible he rode on a horse as a major road followed the canal the entire way to its end. Five days later, Marco would reach the city of Dezhou, and then take six more days to reach Dongping. I want to point out that these cities were not really along the coast. Some of the ones we will reach later in this episode will be, but most of these are inland, but only by about 1 to 200 miles. Remember, most of these, at least at this point, are on the Grand Canal. Anyhow, Marco would call Dongping the finest city in the area. He noted the great wealth, much of it derived from the silk trade. The city was immaculate and featured gardens of fruit of all kinds. At this time in his narrative, Marco talked a great deal about Chinese women, who are very different from the women Marco had encountered on his excursions into the interior of China. He called these women chaste and proper and modest, saying, quote, On no account do they skip and dance or romp around. End quote. He goes on to say that they don't gossip or go to extravagant parties or feasts. Instead, they go to respectable places, such as temples or homes of relatives, usually chaperoned by another family member. It was all very proper and more in line with Marco's European sensibilities towards women. Of course, here he was describing the upper crust of Chinese society. 
The demeanor of the common people was likely very different, but it is not something that he discusses. Another thing that Marco brings up at this time was the idol worship in the city. As we have discussed, most Chinese incorporated some sort of idol worship or veneration into their lives. In Dongping, he says the locals had 84 different idols, each with a name and some unique purpose or function. Marco even says that he delved into this strange world when he employed an old woman to speak to the spirits to help him locate a ring he had lost. He doesn't go into many details on this process, but he reports that he recovered the ring. Here we see practical Marco Polo. Most Europeans would have blanched at the idea of beseeching some pagan idol for anything, but Marco was very matter-of-fact about doing so. He said, hey, it works for the locals, so let's give it a try. He is quick, however, to wave off any thoughts that he worshipped anything other than the Christian god, saying, quote, not mind you that I made an offering to the idols or paid homage to them, end quote. Marco would next head down the Grand Canal for a couple of days to the city of Jinning, and then another eight days to Lusheng. I want to note that Marco tends to be wildly positive about all these places. They are all beautiful and prosperous, and overflowing with food and commerce and happy people and cute puppies. Perhaps this was true, but it's likely he focused only on the very best of these cities. After all, he wanted to paint a rosy picture for the great Khan and his readers back in Europe, so he pumped up all the good stuff. So Marco would continue south, the cities growing more populous and closer together. He passed through a succession of cities, including Sukien, Waian, Jiayu, and Taizhou, before reaching Nantong across the mighty Yangtze River from what is modern-day Shanghai. Here, Marco was truly overwhelmed by the commercial trade that flowed to and from China. The Yangtze is the biggest river in China, and goods came not only from the interior of the country, but from the Pacific Ocean. Ships from India and the Indian Islands made regular voyages to the port, bringing with them spices and pearls and other exotic goods. The Yangtze is deep and wide and long, nearly 4,000 miles, and it is the principal trade route into the interior of China, and it took 120 days to travel its entire length. Marco said that it reached 16 provinces and 200 cities, and that's not counting all the tributaries. The traffic on the river was immense, and Marco says, quote, I am afraid to tell you how many ships there are on this river for fear of being called a liar, end quote. Of course, he then goes on to say that there were 15,000 ships just in the area he was in, which means he was probably lying, or exaggerating, as he was known to do. We will just say it was a lot. By the way, when Marco says things like 15,000 ships, he's obviously exaggerating, but some people suggest that this practice of his, the wild exaggerations, are simply his way of saying, there were so many I couldn't count, or something like that. Thus, these huge numbers might just be a sort of stylistic tool but we don't really know. So, Marco would go to various cities in this area, but the biggie was Yangzhou, about 80 miles up the Yangtze River from Nantong on the northern bank. It was also located where the Grand Canal connected to the Yangtze. Yangzhou was a great metropolis, ruling over 27 other regional cities. Marco tells several stories about the city, including the tale of how it was captured by the Mongols a few years earlier. The story goes that the Mongols had invaded the region, wiping out any city that defied them. Well, the king of Yangzhou fled the city at the approaching Mongols, leaving the defense to the queen. Now, the Mongols were led by Kublai Khan's finest general, Bayan Qingsang, whose nickname was Bayan Hundred Eyes, which, by the way, is an awesome Dungeons and Dragons name. Anyhow, an astrologer had predicted to the queen that the city would be defeated by a man with a hundred eyes. Faced with such a prophecy, she surrendered. Now, that's a great story, but it's probably not true. 
No matter, the city was spared being slaughtered, and the queen was taken to the court of Kublai Khan, where she was treated with great respect. By the way, astrology was huge within China and the Mongol Empire. Marco said that there were 5,000 astrologers just in Kanbalik, and people were so serious about it, they wouldn't take a poop without consulting their astrologer. Okay, maybe that's not real, but astrology was a big deal in much of Asia. People would record the exact day, hour, and minute of the birth of a child, and under what constellation and planet. And when they had important decisions to make, and even some not-so-important decisions, they consulted the astrologer. Getting married? Talk to the astrologer. What's the best day to conclude a business deal? Talk to the astrologer. Should I go on this trip? Talk to the astrologer. You get the idea. Now, a second story I want to mention about Yang Zhao is that, in his book, Marco said that he governed the city for three years in lieu of the local baron. I've read these years being around 1285 or so. Now, this is one whopper of a tale, and there's virtually no chance it's true. While Marco was clearly identified as a representative of the Khan, that he would come to rule an important city such as Yang Zhao is, frankly, just weird and pretty much impossible. I mean, the statement comes out of left field. He's traveling through China, and suddenly, boom, he's ruling this major city for three years. No one is buying that. The more realistic version is that Marco did come here and serve as an official for the Khan, perhaps as a tax collector or an official overseeing the salt trade. As we have touched on in the past in the series, this might have been one of those times where Marco and or his biographer decided to spice up the narrative by exaggerating Marco's status. Remember, there's an inherent bias in the minds of Europeans that they are better than the Chinese. And to them, they would expect someone like Marco Polo to rise to such an exalted position. I mean, he's a white guy and a Christian. Of course he's going to become important. I mean, there's no doubt he's better than a Chinaman. Now, just to make this part of the book even more weird, let us move on to another of the fantasies that are part of Marco's travels, which he talks about here. And this is the Battle of Xianyang. In this part of the book, Marco says that he, and his father and uncle, showed the Mongols how to make a counterweight trebuchet, which was then used by the Mongols to help capture the city of Xianyang. A trebuchet, by the way, is a kind of sophisticated catapult. A few huge red flags here. 1. Xianyang is inland, like 500 miles from the region around Yangzhou. It is nowhere near any of the places he is discussing in his book. And second, the Battle of Xianyang took place in 1273, two years before the Polos even arrived in China. And third, Marco and his family would not have had the skill set to show the Mongols how to build a sophisticated trebuchet. They were not military engineers, they were merchants. Now I should mention that the Mongols did use trebuchets at this battle, something they had not previously employed in combat. Most historians believe that Muslim engineers had constructed the weapons, certainly not the Polo family. Thus, this claim is not even an exaggeration. It's a flat-out lie. Or it's been misinterpreted by writers copying and translating the book shortly after its publication. Now, you may wonder, why is this story in the book? Why tell such a blatant lie when you have all this great material to work with? And that's a good question. My best guess is that Marco recounted the battle to Rusticello, and he, or perhaps later writers, decided it would make a good story to insert Marco into the fight in some fashion. After all, everyone loves a good soldier. Plus, there's this desire to demonstrate how clever the Christians are compared to the Mongols and the Chinese. What better way to do this than to say that Marco and his family had provided the key to a great Mongol military victory? No matter, it is one of those things that scholars and historians ignore about Marco Polo's writings, even as his doubters hold it up as proof that his story was all a lie. 
Like I said, my thoughts are that someone inserted Marco into the story instead of just recounting the battle, which, by the way, is something Marco does many, many times in his book. Anyhow, let us continue on our journey south. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. From the Yangtze River, Marco would follow the Grand Canal through the cities of Chongjiang, Changzhou, and Suzhou. Chongjiang was the site of a great slaughter in the recent wars. Marco tells the story of how the Mongols captured the city, but then went on a drinking spree after their victory. The local people took that moment to strike back, killing many of the Mongol soldiers. Bayan Hundred Eyes, remember him? Well, he recaptured the city and put much of the populace to the sword, the price for their treachery. The city of Suzhou, located just south of the Yangtze on Lake Tai, was famed for its magicians and astrologers, as well as its many bridges. Marco called it an amazing city and said that its name means Earth, which will go with another city to the south, Kinsei, modern-day Hangzhou, which means heaven. Thus, the cities of heaven and earth. And that leads us to Hangzhou, the city of heaven, and one of the highlights of Marco's book. I have resisted describing in depth all the cities we have traveled through because it does get repetitive, but I've also done it because Marco's description of Hangzhou is his most detailed and it sort of represents all these magnificent cities that we have passed through. So, let us talk about Hangzhou. The city was called Kinzhei by Marco and is sometimes referred to as Xingzhei and Lin'an. Located about 1,100 miles from Beijing, it marked the end of the Grand Canal, which had reached the city in 609. The city was an ocean port that sat at the entrance of the Qiantang River in Hangzhou Bay. This made it one of the most important trade centers in all of Asia. Built around a series of canals, not unlike Marco's Venice, the city had been the capital of the Song Dynasty, which had ruled much of China until being defeated by the Mongols. Hangzhou had had such a reputation for splendor that Kublai Khan had ordered his troops not to sack the city when it had been conquered. When Marco arrived in the city, he was astounded by its size. Population estimates generally run between half a million and a million, making it, perhaps, the largest city in the world. Marco said that the city had a circumference of a hundred miles, and everything in the city was big and wondrous. There were many bridges, countless wide, clean streets, and markets that drew 50,000 people three times a week. The size of these markets was unlike anything Marco had ever experienced. There were merchants from all over China, as well as Persia and India and Japan, and dozens of other places. You could find food, any kind of game or fish, wild animals, rare spices, wine, and a million other things. Marco expanded on the markets to speak about the huge quantity of shops and artisans and craftsmen. These dealt in pearls, spices, jewels, and much, much more. And then there were the professionals, such as doctors and astrologers and alchemists, the latter often called magicians or sorcerers. Another industry that flourished was prostitution. Marco says of the prostitutes, quote, their number is so great that I do not dare give it, end quote. But he notes that prostitution was a sophisticated and lavish business. 
It was a profession whose members were skilled and practiced in the arts of sensuality and sex. He says, quote, These women are very skilled and practiced at the arts of flattery and seduction and are always ready with the right words for every kind of person so that foreigners who have once enjoyed them remain, so to speak, in a transport of delight and are so captivated by their sweetness that they can never forget them. And this is why when they return home, they tell people they have been to Kinsey, that is to say, the city of heaven, and long for the time that they can go back there. End quote. So with all the commerce and markets and shops, and its prominence as an administrative center within China, as you can imagine, the city of Hangzhou was overflowing with luxury and opulence. Marco touts the city's hundreds of temples and monasteries, 3,000-plus bathhouses, and thousands of mansions and castles. Silk, so precious and elegant, was so common that it was worn every day and in casual situations by the local women. And the city's great lake was dotted along the shores with mansions and palaces owned by the local nobility. And the lake itself was a source of luxury. Marco talked about these gaudy, multi-level barges that floated around the lake, the rich enjoying their days on these luxurious party boats packed with food and wine and entertainment. By the way, it's unlikely that, outside of the court of Kublai Khan, Marco had ever experienced idle luxury like this in his life. The truth is, life in the 13th century was hard. People just did not have the time to lounge around on a regular basis. But here, the Chinese did exactly that, and it was more than just having wine and food on a party boat. Things like poetry and theater and art all thrived. Now, all of this meant that the city generated a huge amount of cash for the Mongol Empire. Marco said nothing rivaled Hangzhou for generating revenue for the Khan. He had been in the city when the Khan's men had put together a report on the city's revenue and population. Thus, he goes into detail about how things worked. He said that merchants arriving and leaving by land would pay one-thirtieth of their revenue as a tax. Ships importing and exporting goods paid a 10% tax. As for crops and livestock, well, 10% was allocated to the crown. And pretty much everyone, such as the artisan guilds, would pay something to the empire. Marco provides some numbers, and they are staggering, easily dwarfing the commercial trade of his home city of Venice. Now, all of this money and luxury has its downsides, and the first is something that I really haven't mentioned in our series, and that is slavery. Slavery was commonplace in China. Slaves would be imported into the kingdom, even from as far away as Africa. But the more common way to get slaves was to conquer the lands around you and enslave the people. In fact, Chinese explorer Zhang Ha, who we did an episode on a while back, had been made a eunuch and sent into slavery as a boy after his land had been conquered. We should note that slavery was not limited to the rich. Many families, even those without a lot of wealth or status, had slaves. Another common practice was for the poor to sell their children into servitude. For many families, this was, at times, the only way for them to survive. Now, the other dark side to all of this was the fact that China was still an occupied land. The Khan feared rebellion, and thus there were lots and lots of soldiers stationed in the city and throughout China. These were not always Mongol warriors, who tended to be horsemen. Instead, these were often troops brought in from another part of the empire. They might come from 100 or 200 miles away, and thus have no affiliation with the city. And they would be rotated out every couple of years. Theoretically, this would make them outsiders and kept them from siding with the local population in any kind of conflict. So that is Hangzhou, the city of heaven. Going forward, we find that Marco continued south, but as a private citizen, not as a representative for the Khan. We don't know exactly why this happened. Perhaps his term simply expired and he desired to explore more. And another possibility often cited is that he reunited with his father and or uncle 
and simply took up being a merchant again. So from Hangzhou, Marco would travel overland as the Grand Canal went no further. For the most part, he would be on well-maintained and safe imperial roads. He would go through various cities on his trek south, including Jinhua, Kazhao, and Li Shui. He would then head through a series of mountains and valleys, and after three days, would come to the city of Jianwu. He would call the city one of the, quote, finest and most beautiful in the world, end quote. Marco would note the city's stone and marble bridges, which were more than a mile long. Commodity-wise, there were spices such as ginger, plus sugar, which, he said, was not as good as Egyptian sugar. Also, he reported that the people in the area were cannibals, but not the kind of cannibals who would go out attacking others and eating them. Instead, if a person died of unnatural causes, such as an accident, his or her body was free to be eaten up. This was considered a delicacy. Marco stressed that those who died a natural death, such as old age or disease, were not eaten. By the way, this area would be one of the last to hold out against the Mongols, so the war was fresh in the minds of everyone. And the region, which was very mountainous, had produced a hard and independent people who were not afraid to occasionally strike back at their occupiers. Because of this, there was a large Mongol military presence, which the locals greatly resented. Three days later, Marco would reach the port of Fuzhou, opposite the northern tip of Taiwan. The city was heavily visited by merchants from all over the Far East, and was a bustling hub for the trade of pearls and precious stones. Now, one interesting comment Marco makes at this time is that he was here with his uncle, Maffeo. This supports those who believe that Marco had come this far south with his uncle, and perhaps his father, as a merchant instead of as an agent of the Khan. From Fuzhou, Marco would travel five more days down the coast to the city of Zaitan, which today is called Quanzhou. This port was also a major spot for foreign trade, making it a vibrant and cosmopolitan city. There were Buddhist and Hindu temples, Islamic mosques, and even a Christian church. The city was at its height of prosperity when Marco arrived, and its great naval base would be where Kublai Khan launched his invasions of Japan. So this is the terminus of this week's journey down the eastern coast of China by Marco Polo. It had been a trek of at least 1,500 miles, probably more. A few things stand out. First was the prosperity and luxury of these places. These were some of the most advanced and sophisticated regions in the world at this time, and in conquering them, Kublai Khan had stuffed his coffers with loot. Second, there is an undercurrent of uneasiness throughout our story, even if Marco doesn't talk that much about it. But it is clear that China was far from this happy-go-lucky, everything-is-fine land. The truth is, the cost to occupy these lands was enormous, and the wars waged by the Khan were expensive as well. The failed invasions of Japan were incredibly costly in both lives and money. And third, in Marco's book, we find a bit of a change in our narrator. Marco becomes less strident and less judgmental when talking about the native people, their customs, and their religion. It seems like Marco was, perhaps, a little older, a little wiser, and a little more open-minded on his journey down the coast, compared to his previous mission through the heart of China. Anyhow, that will wrap up our story for today. Next time, Marco and his family begin to plot their return to Europe, and it will lead to what may be the most dramatic and expansive journey in the life of our Venetian travelers. So that is it for today, my friends. Thanks again for listening. I will see you next time for Part 5 in our series on the legendary Marco Polo.